0: beautiful, beautiful. beautiful. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read from the ancient text this morning, found in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after Having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Word of God. God. Please be seated. Yes, as Pastor Devo rightly said, pointed out we are praying for pastor raywin who fell ill at the end of this week and so we are we are here together um sharing a different part of own it she's going to be back with us to share own your power own your voice uh, in a couple weeks but today we want to talk about owning our humanity owning our humanity As we cogitate on this, we find it in the book of Mark, chapter 2, where Jesus is dealing with a crowd, some Pharisees, and a paralytic who had some friends to lower him down into the house. Today in our world, I feel like there are three major constructs that I think um, have met and then have created kind of a, a, a challenge for us as church and what it means to be fully human before Christ. One of those challenges is the theology, and I'll use the term as it is used here, of clean and unclean. Uh, this, this idea of being a clean or unclean. Uh, another way we could think of it is the saved or unsaved, or sacred versus secular. Adventists we had a, a special term for, we call it the, the theology of the remnant, right? There's, there is a remnant. There are those of us who are in, and then there are those of us who are not in. And in order to be in, you have to be worthy. You have to be able to be a part of the clean so we've got that idea or that theology and it kind of meets up with the philosophical world of rugged individualism that is very much alive in our world and among us today to be ruggedly individual means to be self-reliant to be independent and so because these are values that we, we 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 cherish so much we have difficulty asking for help from others. We see it as a weakness to be vulnerable or to say, I can't do this. And so we carry on in our lives trying to do everything by ourselves. And even when we're gathered together in a community, if someone does something for us, we feel obliged to do exactly the same amount back, not because we are in a relationship, but because we don't wanna feel like we owe that person something. And so the community, while it feels like it's community, really what it is, is a hidden, rugged individualism. We want to feel like we've paid all of our debts because we can. And then, finally... The third construct that I feel like has passed this crossroads is the one of superhuman conceptualization, or the concept of superhuman, which is so prevalent in our world today. I mean, every movie coming out is about some kind of superhero, right? Black Adam is coming out soon, and I'm going to watch it. Amen. But there are tons of them, and they keep coming out, and they keep coming out. There's this idea of superhumanness. But it's not just in the movies we watch. It's also in the news that we see about superhuman finances, those who own companies and they're traveling the world. We see it in our social media, superhuman adventures. I don't know if you've ever gone onto your social media and watched people, and you're like, I hate your life. Why are you riding a shark whale or whale shark? What is that? Is that a thing? I want to show you a picture of my wife. This is my wife. Horseshoe. (laughs) She's still with us today, so just to clarify where this story is going. But look at my wife's wonderful face. I I asked her permission if I could show this. Look at her face. What look is that on her face? (laughs) Some may uh, interpret that as joy. Others may interpret that as utter fear. Right? And so we're at the, the horseshoe thing, and she's like, She's like, you know, we're here now, honey, I've just got to take a picture, I've got to take a picture near the edge. I said, babe, you don't like heights. She's like, I know, but we're here, and I want to post the picture on Instagram. I said, so post the picture of you away from the ledge. She's like, no, that's just not cool, no one will like that. She's like, I want to get to that. I said, okay, go for it. And, and so as she gets closer to the edge, she begins to crawl, and then she's on all fours, and people are walking past her like, what are you doing? But to her, this was the, you know, she, and she just, you know, she's starting to weep and uh, and she's crying and she's sitting on the edge. uh, And I said, one, two, three. uh." (laughs) Right. As soon as the picture goes, ah, she's like backing out, like crawling for her life. Right. So we see these photos all over social media of people living superhuman lives. And we say, oh man, how come I don't have that? we don't realize a lot of these photos that we see are contrived photos of people trying to look like they're having superhuman adventures and so at the end of it it's slightly empty but when these three things meet this theology of clean and in and out this the 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 huge ideology of rugged individualism and then you've got a social world that is all about superhuman things we begin to try to live these big, big, big- picture lives, and we forget that we are only human. Turn to a person that you say, "I'm only human." "Hmm. Spouses remember that when you get home. and your spouse has left something out. your partner has not cleaned up after themselves, and you want to say, "Come on." Then you think, ah, he's only barely human. (laughs) I wonder if there was any value in us taking a Sabbath away from all of that, away from our social media, away from uh, the grandizement of individualism, away from this theology that sometimes is quite toxic about those who belong and those who don't. To recognize that God is in love with and wants to use us fully in our humanity. So quick recap from Mark chapter 2. Jesus shows up in his home in Capernaum. Then the house gets packed out with people. People from everywhere come to listen to Jesus. And so Jesus begins to teach, because that's what Jesus does. He's teaching now, and the words are flowing out eloquently. People are being touched. They're being moved. They're hearing nuance to the law that they hadn't heard before. They are fully focused in on what Christ is doing. Then all of a sudden, while while he is in rhythm, while he is preaching and teaching, and the people are learning, interruption happens some people come with their paralyzed friend and they realize oh man this house is full Maybe they got the wrong flyer. Maybe they were supposed to go to the event the next day where Jesus was healing people because Jesus was teaching on this day. And they said, oh man, we, our guy needs to get in there and, and it's packed and he's teaching. What do we do next? I just want to commend the four human beings who carry this guy to Jesus. Every community needs people who are willing to carry people to Jesus. Amen. Oh, man, if we would do that more often. Instead of of talking about people, instead of just pressing them off with an excuse that I've got things or I'll pray for you. What if we carried each other to Jesus? Because you realize this wasn't an ambulance. They didn't have a car. They didn't have, they didn't, they carried the guy. From like wherever they came from, they carried the guy. At this point, when the house is full, what would you have done? I don't know. I'm tired. I I carried him here all day. I may have been just like, bro, we'll just leave you here. Jesus will come see you later. And walk away. No, these guys didn't. They said there needs to be conclusion. There needs to be some kind of uh, a resolution to this. So they climb up onto the house. They tear the roof apart. And they lower this gentleman before Jesus. I'll think about that for a second. How dire is the interruption here. Could you imagine here us where in this moment we're worshiping together, the word is flowing out of the text, we're talking about it, and all of a sudden somebody rips a hole in our roof and begins to lower someone down in here. First of all, this is a high roof, and it would be scary. But if it was in your house, Think about it. You're focused, man. This is a moment. It's efficient. It's good. And sometimes as a church, I think we like the program of efficiency and goodness more than the meaning of relational value. Where we say, man, don't mess up the flow, man. This this worship service is good, man. The word is coming. Man, the production is good. And, and, And in the midst of that, these gentlemen lower down a paralytic. So they interrupt this awesome program, this teaching lecture that Jesus is doing. Secondly, they ruined the man's house. Whoever's house that is now has a sunroof. <laughs> I know if that was, we just moved into our house. Man, if somebody would dare to try to rip a hole in my, I would be super mad. Like, bro, really? Right? This is what you're going to do? Thirdly, thirdly was a paralytic. A paralytic is seen as unclean. He's categorized as less than. He's ostracized by the community. He gets no rights to be there. And, you, you, you know, in, in the Mathian, uh record, the author there says that the Pharisees were sitting front row. So can you imagine this unclean person just dropping right in front of the Pharisees? How offended would they be at this moment? How dare this person, who should not be in front of any of us, have place at the center of us. So, this is the situation. Jesus turns to my guy, says these words Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are irate. The text says that they were yelling blaspheme in their heads. How could Jesus do this? And so Jesus responds with, is it easier to forgive ones of sins or say, get up, take your mat, and go home? And so then he proceeds to say, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And the man got up and left. All were amazed in verse 7. And they worshiped God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Hmm. So here's our text, and I think that there are two uh, exciting events. One was when they ripped the, the ceiling out and they brought the person down. The other is when Jesus actually tells the man to get up and walk, and the guy gets up and he begins to walk. Those are just two. You can go home and tell stories about that. Man, if this had happened in our time, the, the sermon illustrations would flow abundant about this situation. I I'd preach a whole year series if I was there to see some of this stuff. Those two events were major events. They were big. But I think for me, the, the most powerful part of this passage isn't found in the interruption of the moment they were having and it wasn't that the man was able to get up but found in the five words that are in his phrase that Jesus gives to the man when the man is before him. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven ah a few weeks ago I talked about how we tend to rush from the beginning to the end because we like to see the results we like to see the fruits we like to see the big ending the wow the climactic moment um, and we don't spend enough time in the suspension of the in-between what is happening the details what is God possibly doing underneath the soil before the fruits that come from the tree so here it is this is one of those moments he says son your sins are forgiven. And this phrase to me is everything when it comes to this passage, because it points back to this gentleman and the problem the community has with him. Number one, Jesus uses here son, creating a familial connection or a familial bond to this individual. This man is now the child of the Messiah. And that's big news. Before, he was no one. Before, he didn't have anyone who wanted to be connected or related to him. But now the son of the living God of the universe says, you are a part of me. What kind of deep, beautiful value does it give each of us to remember that in our brokenness, we are a child of God? Oh, that's good news. Oh, that's beautiful. I I, I can't get enough of that. To think that, that in my deepest of valleys, in the ocean that I find myself, in the crevice of brokenness and embarrassment, even in that place of failure, I can still know that God claims me. Son, relative, child, you are mine. Secondly, and just as important. Jesus points out that the man's sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I believe it was Paul Tillich, German-American philosopher, who, 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 who pointed out that in this moment, Jesus wasn't forgiving the sins of the paralyzed man. He was proclaiming that in the sight of God, the man was sinless. I you consider that. Think about that. This gospel story underlines that Jesus didn't have to forgive sins. He simply had to point out that God wasn't offended by humanity. God, now remember, this is a passive voice. Your sins are forgiven. This isn't a, this isn't a, a proclamation from Jesus. He, this is a, a statement. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, hey, you are sinless. And if you are sinless in the clean and unclean theology, what is that man now considered? He is what? Clean. He's no longer unclean. And if he is clean just the way he is, then that means what for the, for the community? What's the implication there for the rest of the community? That they can no longer ignore him. They can no longer walk around him. They can no longer just, just unrelate him to their world. He is a now a part of them. For those who have come to hear Jesus, the Messiah, as the authoritative voice in life and in the kingdom, they must consider the man clean. He can no longer be offensive to them. What once was, oh, man, this is offensive. This is, this, is not, this is not good. Now they must say, ah, you are now a part of us. You are, as you are in this moment, not healed, not, not fully capable to do all things, but here, as you are, you are fully human and fully accepted into the kingdom. His humanity, no matter how fragile or broken it was to them, is complete and whole, and he is beautiful in the eyes of God. Hence, he is beautiful in the eyes of the community. He can no longer be offensive to them. His fragility, his vulnerability, it was on display to all, and God was not offended. God was not put off or saddened by him in his state In fact, God is in love with his body, and God is in love with him. The moment transforms disparity and now turns into the mobility of hope. This is beautiful. God sees us in our very present humanity, wherever and whatever it is that you are moving through right now, and says that in this place, as you are, you are beautiful. Henry Nguyen puts it this way as he writes in Wounded Healer. When we become aware that we do not have to escape our pains, but that we can mobilize them into common search for life, those very pains are transformed from expressions of despair into signs of hope. He continues, Through this common search, Hospitality becomes community. Hospitality becomes community as it creates a unity based on the shared confession of our basic brokenness and on the shared hope. So you see, God is not looking for superhumans, God's not looking for rugged individualism, God is not looking for those who feel valuable or worthy enough. To be clean, or saved, or sacred, or remnant. God is looking for His sons and daughters, siblings of the kingdom of God. I asked my wife. I said, "Honey, what does this all mean to you?" You know, I'm like gibbering and jabbering to her about all this. Like, what, what do you think it means, love? And you know, she stands there for a second, and then, you know, she's just kind of like, well, you know, it's, it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's, it's nice. I said, I know, but did you like it? Did you like the thought? Was it, did it feel nuanced? Was it different? For what she said, yeah, it was okay. It was okay. I said, okay, all right. You're not impressed by me. Praise God. Okay. So what does all of this mean to you, love? Tell me. Reach deep into your, into your scholar hat. Um, Find a space in your medical uh, mind as a nurse and tell me what this means. And she says, okay, well. And she sat there and she looked at me. She says, basically what this means is we're not damaged goods. I said, wow, you are so much smarter than me. You're not damaged goods. You are whole and complete and beautiful to God as you are. This man didn't need to be physically healed, though he was. He was already beautiful to God. He was already supposed to be a part of the community as he is. And sometimes I feel like we're always running to try to catch up with other people. And, you know, when we go through stuff, how are you doing? I'm fine. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everything is good. Is it good? Yes. Praise God. No, help me, please. Sometimes I feel like as Christians... We're constantly trying to make life look perfect. And we don't, it doesn't help that we come together once a week so we don't see each other all week long in our, in our brokenness and in our challenges and in our struggles. But the one time we do get together, we all dress up really nice. Right? We don't see each other all week long. We're going through things. We're hurting. We're in pain. You know, we're struggling. We can't put clothes on. We're walking around our house in pajamas. As soon as we come to church, we button up and look nice. David Fitch, in his book, Faithful Faithful Presence, writes the following. In worship, Christians sit next to Christians in large sanctuaries, never knowing that someone next to them is struggling. Our personal struggles remain hidden because we are too ashamed to talk about them in the church where everyone shows only their Sunday or for us Sabbath best. We come here and we, we live out the Instagram spirituality where we try to make it look like, man, we are having a great time and the Lord is blessing us only to go home desperate for someone to care. Church is not about the production or the lights or the music. Praise God that it's good. Praise the Lord, amen. I wanna say that right now. I'm thankful for very good worship. Thank you. Thank you, praise team. Can we thank our praise team? Thank you, praise team. Thank you, Marjorie and Kevin, for that gorgeous piece of music that you did. Thank you, thank you, Pastor Devo, for the hard work you do. Thank you to our deacons and our elders. Thank you to everyone who was a part of that, and that is good and beautiful, but that is not the end of church. That is barely the beginning. What church should look like is you and I being together in a space in our full humanity and being okay that that is how God made us. Yeah, you get me. I'm with you, sister. It's okay for us not to have everything together. It's okay for us to be vulnerable together. It's okay for you and I to be human. It's okay to be less than perfect. In our fragility and humanity, we are fully loved and valued by God. And I think as a church, we could probably do a little bit better job at making sure those around us feel the same. Amen? Amen. You and I aren't going to come from the same place. We're not going to drive the same kind of car, you lucky devil. We're not going to have uh, the same concept of, of what corporate worship should look like. Our theology is is going to be separate and different at times. And yet, in the space where God resides, we can be fully human together. And experience each other's pains and struggles, desires and needs. And know that in our incompleteness, God loves us.